Hello breakfast food lovers and welcome to today's installment of Serial Crimes. I really struggled with choosing a case for this episode and when I finally made my decision I had a ton of research ahead of me. It's honestly a small miracle that I managed to get this episode out in time. I actually read a whole book specifically for research purposes and I'm going to be quoting it throughout the episode. It was of course The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson and I would actually highly recommend it. This is not a book reviewing podcast yet, but if you're into true crime and non-fiction books then you should definitely look into it. But as per usual with books and documentaries about true crime, the story is dramatised a little and a couple of the facts are mere theories and actually lack concrete evidence. I'm going to try my very best to differentiate the theories from the facts, especially when it comes to H.H. Holmes' victims. That's right, today is all about H.H. Holmes, aka the torture doctor, Dr. Death, or simply Herman Webster Mudgett. But you might know him under his sensationalised title, America's First Serial Killer. Oh. And speaking of first serial killers, I don't have plans to cover Jack the Ripper as of now, but Halloween is basically around the corner, so who knows. Not all of the victims attributed to H.H. Holmes are actually proven to have been murdered at all, but even if Holmes only committed a fraction of those crimes, he is still an incredibly twisted individual. Before I start with a mostly chronological account of his life, I'm going to read you a passage from the preface of The Devil in the White City. Quote, In Chicago, at the end of the 19th century, amid the smoke of industry and the clatter of trains, there lived two men, both handsome, both blue-eyed, and both unusually adept at their chosen skills. Each embodied an element of the great dynamic that characterised the rush of America toward the 20th century. One was an architect, the builder of many of America's most important structures, amongst them the Flat Iron Building in New York and Union Station in Washington, D.C. The other was a murderer, one of the most prolific in history and harbinger of an American archetype, the urban serial killer. End quote. Our story starts with Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price on the 16th of May 1861 in the little town of Gilmington, New Hampshire, when their son, Herman Webster, was born. He's a tourist, by the way. He also had three siblings, Ellen, Arthur and Henry, whose name Herman later wound up using for his most notable alias. He was also the middle child, so that explains a lot. Levi was a farmer and allegedly a bit of an alcoholic, and it's safe to say that he didn't have the best temper, especially not when it came to dealing with the kids. But he was able to provide for his family and the Mudgets lived comfortably. Herman was actually quite close to his mother, so basically we've got ourselves a mama's boy with daddy issues. They were part of the Methodist Church, and I think we can all imagine what a strict religious upbringing can do to a child, especially when combined with strict disciplinary measures, such as being locked up without food or water. 
Though some sources say that his upbringing was entirely normal, not really influenced by religion, and people only started to spin that narrative later to make him fit the psychopath criteria list, you know. Herman obviously grew up to be a doctor, but when he was five years old, he was actually very afraid of them. And honestly, who can blame him? Back then, it was really common to have a real human skeleton just kind of hanging in the doctor's office to showcase anatomy, I guess. Keep this in mind, because it comes back in the story later, and it plays a really creepy part. Some of the older kids at the school wanted to scare Herman even more by showing him the skeleton at the local doctor's office, but after a bit of an initial shock, Herman was actually really fascinated by the human remains. His other interests included reading, and he kept many of his favourite books in his room, along with a memory box of sorts. In there, he had photographs and all sorts of small memorabilia, and, um, oh, allegedly, also the skulls of animals which he allegedly killed and disassembled himself. Other than this early creepiness and infatuation with death, Herman was a darling little boy. He had piercing blue eyes and he was really well mannered. He enjoyed being outdoors and going on walks. He was on the quieter side and enjoyed school. So definitely a mama's boy and not the sort to make much trouble. But as much as the grown women of the neighbourhood adored these attributes, the other children thought he was strange or at the very least boring and Herman didn't end up having many friends throughout his childhood, but he did have one close friend named Tom. He was a little older than Herman and the two of them got along well. One day they were playing in an abandoned house when an accident occurred. Tom fell and died. Obviously, lots of people speculated that this was Herman getting bored of killing little animals and graduating to humans in true textbook psychopath fashion, but there's no proof to support this whatsoever, and it's actually very likely that this was nothing more than an accident, especially considering that Tom was older and at a mental and physical advantage. Regardless, this event only brought Herman closer to death. In 1877, the teenage Herman started working as a teacher, first in Gilmanton and then in the nearby town of Alton, where he met Clara, a 17-year-old girl who would become his first wife. At this point, Herman was quite a charmer, and like so many other psychopaths, people weren't put off by his strange antics. Many were actually intrigued by his slightly odd mannerisms, such as touchy-feeliness and intense eye contact, which I don't know about you, but those are definitely red flags to me. Herman was also definitely the kind of guy to pressure a woman into having sex with him. In fact, he tried doing exactly that with Clara before they actually got married on July 4th, 1878. I'd make a comment about how things moved quickly between the two, but I suppose I can't really do that since those were just the times. Herman's mum, as well as his sister, actually disliked Clara for no reason other than their motherly complex, which made them think that no one was good enough for darling little Herman. Anyways, in 1880, Clara gave birth to a little boy, Robert, 
and Holmes was set on changing his profession and studying to become a doctor. Clara and Robert went to live with her parents-in-law and Herman set off to his brand new position as a doctor's apprentice. This apprenticeship was conducted by Dr. Nahum White and lasted for one year. It's likely that Herman was taken in due to family connections because his uncle on his mother's side was also an apprentice for the same doctor years prior. And Herman was not the best student. He was very smart, but he just didn't do well academically. Herman and the doctor had a good relationship and Herman was really happy with this new line of work. After enrolling at the University of Vermont in Burlington for a year, he later switched over to the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery in 1882, but not before getting into a couple of conundrums at Vermont. Herman met the landlady's daughter and they started getting all lovey-dovey with each other. Now, keep in mind that he was already married at this point and the whole cheating thing was even more frowned upon back then than it is now. The situation ended up resolving itself when Herman's roommate Fred Ingalls told the girl that Herman was already taken. Fred and Herman also got into a fistfight because apparently Fred used his roommate's moustache wax. I guess someone inherited their father's short temper. And not just the temper. Remember how Levi Majid was allegedly an alcoholic? Well, his son sort of took after him, and whilst he was staying in Burlington, he'd meet up with an old widow every morning to drink wine. One of Holmes's fixation in life was to plan out quote-unquote insurance scams, as we'll see later. So he probably just wanted to befriend this gullible lady in order to gain access to her finances. You know how back in the day the landlady would sort of look after the rooms she was renting out and clean up? Well, Herman's landlady, Mrs. Thomas Brew, was minding her own business one day, sweeping the floors when she found the corpse of a baby under Herman's bed. Yes, you heard me right. Apparently everyone just let this slide because it was his medical homework or something along those lines. When Herman moved to the University of Michigan, his wife and son at first came to live with him, but after about a year, they left again, this time going to stay with Clara's parents. At first, Herman visited them, but after a while, he stopped seeing them all together. Holmes kept to his womanizing ways, and he got involved with a widow, who, after finding out that he was married, showed his letters to the university's administration. When confronted, Herman provided handwriting samples to disprove that he had written the letters and the accusations were dropped without any repercussions. But then how can we be sure that he really did have an affair and the woman didn't blatantly lie? Well, Holmes actually told one of his professors that it was all true after he graduated. Herman and Clara were never divorced, but they were separated, and he would obviously go on to marry other women in the future. He also continued his little schemes, and when he took up a summer job as a door-to-door -door salesman, he simply kept all the proceeds for himself. That same summer, he visited Chicago for the very first time, and he liked what he saw. Enough to return a couple of years later. Spoiler alert, I know. 
But I do think it's important to point out that Holmes always wanted to go to Chicago and it would have wound up being his hunting ground no matter what. In terms of academics, Holmes did just fine, getting overtly excited when it was time to learn all about dissection. Some people even think that he partook in a fair bit of grave robbing with his professor, a practice that was illegal but quite common when it came to the field of medical studies in the 19th century. This was never proven, but it is very likely true since it was pretty much a given to dig up corpses for research purposes and the apartment where Herman was living at the time was actually in very close proximity to the local graveyard. People who knew Holmes at this time didn't tend to like him all that much. He fancied himself superior and he'd become quite the elitist, which became especially evident when it came to the interactions between him and his fellow medical students. Herman graduated in 1884, and he was lucky that med school back then didn't have as high of an academic standard as it does now. He really was nothing more than average when it came to schoolwork. Later that year, he moved to Moore's Forks in the state of New York and he worked as a doctor as well as as a teacher. Holmes was either terrible with money or a pathological liar because he kept coming up with excuse after excuse as to why he couldn't pay rent or any of his debts. He also radiated bad vibes in general and a woman who knew him allegedly said, quote, I do not like him. I firmly believe that he would commit murder, end quote. He also came up with another scam to earn a quick buck when smallpox started spreading more and more. He went around town saying that he had a vaccine and it was mandatory that people let him administer it and that they all had to pay 25 cents for that. Could you imagine in this day and age? There was also, very famously, a little boy that was seen with Holmes a couple of times and that eventually disappeared and was never seen again by the townspeople. Obviously, people speculated that this was in fact another one of Holmes's victims, but others are convinced that this was no other boy than Robert, Herman's own son, coming to visit his father. When asked about the boy, Holmes said that he had gone back to Massachusetts and no one looked into the situation any further. Afterwards, Holmes just left Moore's Forks in the middle of the night and never returned. So definitely suspicious, but also no concrete evidence for a murder. When Herman left New York, he also started to use the alias H. H. Holmes. Now, people say that the double H stands for Henry Howard, but Holmes frequently changed up his first names. Horatio, Harvey, Harry, as long as it started with an H, and he later also had entirely different names. After leaving the state of New York, Holmes sought out his old university friend Robert, and the two of them started coming up with an elaborate insurance scam for about $40,000. I'm not going to go into detail, but the plan was complicated, and it included the two of them gathering three corpses. They had already started putting the whole thing in action when Holmes opened up a newspaper and read about a different insurance scam that had gone south. Apparently, this made him use his common sense and he promptly broke off the entire scheme. 
by the way, this is a little off topic, but Holmes would always refer to corpses as, quote, materials. So do with that slightly unsettling piece of information what you will. When Holmes was arrested, he confessed to having killed Robert in 1886 for insurance money. But Watford was alive until 1889, when he died in Ontario. This only goes to show that we can't use Holmes' confession as indefinite proof when it comes to his victims. Holmes briefly lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and worked at a drugstore, but left after a boy died right after getting medication from his workplace. Once again, Holmes insisted that he had nothing to do with it and then gathered up his things and left the city. Before we finally get to Chicago, we have to talk about Minnesota and the things that he got up to whilst he was staying there. Mainly just the fact that he managed to find himself another wife in Minneapolis. Her name was Myrta Belknap and they got married in 1886, even though at this point Holmes was still legally married to Clara. In all fairness, I guess, Holmes did try to file for divorce but his claims were denied and the divorce was never finalised. But Holmes then decided he just didn't care and he was going to marry Myrta no matter what. Myrta got pregnant and on July 4th, 1889, the daughter Lucy Theodate Holmes was born. I just quickly want to point out how that's literally Holmes's first wedding anniversary. Anyways, by then the family was already living in Chicago, Illinois. Holmes had finally decided to move there in August of 1886. Once he arrived in the big city, he quickly found work and company at a drugstore located in Englewood, right next to the post office. It was owned by Elizabeth Holton and her husband, and the two of them ended up becoming good friends with Holmes. That's right, he did not kill them in order to get the shop, although some sources just throw that story out there. The couple simply decided to sell the building to Holmes and went on living their lives elsewhere, whilst still remaining in contact with Holmes. Now, let's talk about the most outlandish part of the story, the murder castle. It started out as a two-story tall building built in 1887 on a lot across from the pharmacy, and it stretched out over an entire block, hence the nickname, the castle. Yes, people called it the castle way before they knew all the murderous things that were happening inside. The building accommodated a couple of apartments as well as a pharmacy, and in 1892, Holmes convinced investors to give him money so that he could build a third floor onto the building and use it as a hotel. Now this is where the World's Columbian Exhibition comes into play a little bit. First, for some general education, in case you don't know what I'm talking about. In 1889, Paris hosted the World's Fair, which was an exhibition that showcased all sorts of innovative advancement and scientific discoveries such as the telephone and the electric light bulb. But you might be more familiar with the star attraction of this fair, a 1,024 feet high, 10,100 tons heavy metal tower, which is, of course, the Eiffel Tower. Now, Americans had initially made fun of the steel tower as well as the fair as a whole, until they saw the outcome and how it benefited France's economy, as well as their image. And of course now America wanted a slice of that pie, 
or should I say baguette, and they started planning their own world's fair. It was to take place in 1993 to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus waltzing in on the Native Americans and taking over their land. I'm sure you're probably wondering why they decided to hold the fair in Chicago, of all places. Well, technically, it was between Washington DC and New York City, but then Chicago decided in true free-spirited, red-blooded American fashion, why not us? And they joined the vote and won. And surprisingly, the fair did not end up being a huge flop. Richard Harving Davis, a journalist, said about the fair that it was, quote, the greatest event in the history of the country since the Civil War, end quote. I'm going to read you two more small excerpts from The Devil in the White City, and then I'll explain what this has to do with Holmes. So bear with me. Quote, the fair occupied over one square mile and filled more than 200 buildings. A single exhibit hall had enough interior volume to have housed the US Capitol, the Great Pyramid, Winchester Cathedral, Madison Square Garden, and St. Paul's Cathedral, all at the same time. Amid so much turmoil, it was understandable that the work of a young and handsome doctor would go unnoticed. As time passed, however, even sober men and women began to think of him in less than rational terms. He described himself as the devil and contended that his physical shape had begun to alter. Enough strange things began happening to the men who brought him to justice to make his claim seem almost plausible. End quote. Now, some people think that Holmes deliberately sought out the opportunity that this exhibition brought in order to expand his murder castle and find victims. And although I think it definitely provided him with the right conditions, which I'll elaborate in a second, I also think that he would have acted in the exact same way, even without the fair. Back to the castle. The first floor was just your regular run-of-the-mill storefront, come in or move along, nothing suspicious to see here type of deal. And I know what you're thinking, it's probably the basement, because it's always the basement, isn't it? Well, turns out Holmes's murder castle wasn't like the other murder castles out there. Yes, the basement was creepy, and it was where all the bodies eventually ended up, but the actual killing took place on the upper floors. The upper floors were crammed with rooms and small compartments that couldn't even be described as rooms. Some of them didn't even have any doors or windows, and the only way in was through trapdoors in other rooms. And the only way out was... Well, that kind of wasn't a way out, other than the chutes that transported the bodies to the basement. I know, this sounds very much like a dark and twisted version of Willy Wonka's factory. The floor plan was downright confusing, with hallways leading to nowhere and designated torture rooms such as gas chambers. Holmes's preferred method of death was a long, dragged-out, torturous one, and some of the torture methods in the sources I read seem straight out outlandish or out of a movie, even to me. He was said to have stretched some people to death, and there was supposedly even one of those spiky wall rooms where he would impale his victims, 
and a room lined with metal panels and blow torches that could heat up and essentially cook someone alive but I don't know how much of this is fact and how much is fiction so take all this with two grains of salt. What isn't fiction however was the well stocked out basement. Here he had a built-in crematorium, surgical tables for dissection and lots of supplies like acid. Remember the real skeletons used in doctor's offices and medical schools that I brought up earlier? Well, what Holmes did to his victims was he would clean them up post-mortem, assemble their bones and sell them as discounted skeletons for anatomy lessons to whoever wanted them. If you're wondering how Holmes managed to have this whole torture palace built for him without anyone questioning what the hell was going on, like I said, he was a very street smart kind of guy. What he did was that he never allowed any of the workers to look at his finalised blueprints. He'd only let them work on a small section for a limited amount of time before firing them and making up complaints, thus getting free labour and never raising suspicion. Oh, and remember all those random secret passages and small compartments? He used them to hide building materials that he hadn't paid for, so that when people came demanding the money, he could just say, look, I'm sorry, but I don't know what you're talking about. I never even got those bricks delivered. Because of how frequently he was switching out suppliers and workers, the, the castle never officially got finished and it never operated as a full-on hotel. Though Holmes did go out advertising to people and directly inviting them to come back and stay at his hotel particularly during the fair. It is said that Holmes tortured and murdered up to 200 people in this castle, although Holmes only confessed to killing 27 people, but I genuinely think that it is possible. Think about it. Most of these victims would have been people traveling by themselves, and this was in the 19th century. Very few of these people were probably reported missing, and if any of their bodies were ever found, they would be Jane Doe's, impossible to identify, especially with the methods used back then. Usually, how they tried identifying bodies was by taking their measurements, like the length of their arms and legs and chest. So yeah, it's virtually impossible to say how many people he killed this way. Let's talk about the victims whose names we do know. Holmes employed Annette Connor to work in his pharmacy, and he moved into one of the apartments along with his wife, Julia Smythe, and their daughter, Pearl, which, side note, is such a cute name. Now, Julia and Holmes eventually started a little affair, and when Ned found out, he was pissed. He left behind his daughter and wife and moved away. The two of them remained with Holmes until Christmas Eve 1891, when they disappeared and were never seen again. Holmes later said Julia died during an abortion, but that doesn't explain what happened to the daughter, and it's actually way more likely that he killed them. He instantly rented out the room again, without even bothering to clean out the clothes and toys left behind, and I believe Little Pearl's bones were later found in the basement. In 1893, a woman named Minnie Williams moved to Chicago and started working for Holmes, but the two of them might have actually met years prior in Boston. Anyways, Holmes made use of his manipulative ways and he convinced Minnie to basically give her property in Texas to a man named Alexander Bond, 
who is in fact not related to James Bond, but definitely related to H.H. Holmes since, you guessed it, Mr. Bond was just another one of his aliases. He wanted to use this land in Texas to build essentially the sequel to his murder castle in Chicago, wanting it to be bigger and better than ever before. But before he put any of those plans into action, he had to get rid of Minnie and her sister Annie. And before he did that, he signed over the deed of the property to a Benton T. Lyman, who in reality was his longtime henchman and so-called friend, Benjamin Pitzel. Then, Holmes and Minnie rented out an apartment together, pretending to be husband and wife, and soon thereafter, Annie came to visit the two of them. He convinced them to write to their relatives that the three of them were to travel to Europe together, but Minnie and Annie were never seen again after July 5th, 1893. He finally left Chicago a year later and moved to Texas, where he was promptly arrested, but not for murder, for selling mortgaged goods, and he was bailed out pretty much instantly. But before he left prison, he met a man, Marion Hedgepeth, who promised that he would give him the contact details for a lawyer to help with his latest insurance scam plan in exchange for $500. This piece of information becomes crucial later on because Holmes, unsurprisingly, never paid up and Hatchpath later tipped off the police to look into Holmes. Anyways, this new plan involved Holmes faking his own death for $10,000. Soon, he decided the insurance company would probably be suspicious of him, and he decided to change his plan to fake Benjamin Pitzel's death instead. Like I said earlier, this man was very loyal to Holmes and would do pretty much anything for him. Now, Benjamin had a wife and five children, and in order for this plan to work, they all had to be in on it, as they would be the ones tasked to identify the body and thus secure the insurance money. Now, when it was time to put the plan into action, Benjamin started having some doubts. And when he met up with Holmes to discuss them, Holmes quickly realized that Benjamin was about to back out. So Holmes decided to change his plan again. And instead of faking Benjamin's death and supplying the police with a disfigured corpse, he might as well actually kill Benjamin and then disfigure his corpse. Obviously, the wife and kids had no idea, and they kept asking after everything was already done when they could be reunited with Benjamin. Holmes told them they'd have to travel for a while to avoid raising suspicion and all that, so he took the three middle children, Alice, Nellie and Howard, in his custody whilst Pitzel's wife was travelling with her oldest and youngest child. What's absolutely wild about this is that at this point, Holmes was essentially manoeuvring being in three places at once, and he was actually quite successful in doing so. He would first move around with the three children in his care, then move around their mother and siblings who had no idea how close they sometimes were to one another, and he also had a wife back home, and she somehow never got suspicious as to where Holmes was day in and day out. Soon, Holmes decided to get rid of the family. He locked Alice and Nellie inside a large trunk, drilled a hole into it, fed a tube through that, and then filled the trunk with gas, asphyxiating the young girls. 
He buried their bodies three feet deep in the cellar of his house in Toronto. And these are the only bodies he didn't fully dispose of, which is kind of strange and concerning, especially considering that he buried these girls naked. We really don't know to what extent he tortured his other victims or his full MO, but this suggests a sexual component which just makes him into an even bigger scumbag than he already was. Even though I don't even think that's possible. Anyways, Howard was killed by a drug overdose before Holmes chopped up his body and eventually only his teeth and a couple pieces of his bones were recovered in the chimney of the Toronto house. The remains of these children weren't found until July 1895. After he got away with all of their murders, Holmes started to get ready to flee the country entirely, dragging along his third wife, Georgiana Yoke, who he had married on the 17th of January 1894 in Colorado. If you're tired of this, don't worry, I am too, and we're almost at the end, because H.H. H. Holmes was finally arrested on the 17th of November 1894 in Boston. And you know how in recent cases sometimes they don't have enough evidence to convict someone for murder so they hold them on more minor charges? A similar thing happened here because the police actually arrested Holmes for horse theft in Texas which is basically the 19th century equivalent of stealing a car. Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Pitzel, found guilty and sentenced to death in October 1895. This is when he confessed to murdering 27 people and attempting to murder six more, but he probably only did this because the Hearst newspaper paid him $7,500 so they could publish his confession along with whatever crazy headlines they wanted to print. This was also reinforced by the fact that many of the people he confessed to killing died at an entirely different place and some of them weren't even dead at all. I still think it is possible that he killed more than 27 people but I think that he was asked to give names so he just listed a couple of the people he did shady business with and none of them no-name travelling victims that just wanted to spend a night in his hotel. But that's obviously just my own speculations. He tried all the diversion of guilt tactics from insanity to full-on satanic possession, even going as far as to writing that he had begun to resemble the devil himself but remorse was not something he showed during his trial. On the 7th of May 1896, Holmes was executed at Moya Menzing prison. The way they enforced the death penalty back then was by hanging, and ironically, Holmes's neck didn't snap like it was supposed to, causing him to slowly suffocate whilst hanging in the air and twitching for close to 20 minutes. Now, I say ironically because slow suffocation was his favourite way to kill, so it only seems right that he got a taste of his own medicine, if only it was a very small taste. What is equally ironic is that before his death, Holmes had gotten quite paranoid about grave robbers digging up his body and dissecting his remains, so he was actually buried 10 feet deep in a casket fully cast in cement at the Holy Cross Cemetery in Pennsylvania. His grave remained unmarked. 
In August 1895, two men were seen sneaking in and out of the murder castle in Chicago and flames shortly thereafter encompassed the building. Though the interior was mostly destroyed, the outside structure remained in place until it was torn down in 1938. Up until recently, there have been many conspiracy theories around how H.H. H. Holmes paid off someone else to be hanged instead of him, and his own descendants were the ones that ordered his body to be exhumed for testing in 2017. But worry not, for dental records confirm that it was, in fact, Herman Webster Mudgett, aka H.H. H. Holmes, who was hanged and buried in that grave. Just the fact that he has descendants currently living among us, just kind of vibing and exhuming his body is unsettling enough though. There's also a whole conspiracy theory that H.H. H. Holmes is in fact Jack the Ripper, but I'm definitely not going to get into that right now. Maybe I'll do a mini episode on this conspiracy specifically, or maybe I'll just wait and cover it in the inevitable Jack the Ripper episode. For now, I'm going to leave you here. I know this case is very convoluted and detailed, so I hope I did a decent job of mapping out the information. As per usual, you can find me on Instagram at Serial Crimes Podcast or on Twitter at Serial Crimes for sources and updates, as well as suggestions for the next episode. I hope you enjoyed your serial, and I'll be back soon with more crimes.